Reading today is taken from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 12 to 23. You can find that on page 733, 733 of the Pew Bibles. So that's Isaiah 45, 12 to 23. It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot, be sa- that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. Thanks, Alison. I wonder if you've got one of these little cards for this new series next to you. If you have, just grab it. 
and flip it over. Appreciate uh, Owen's great artwork on the front and the great uh, design and a uh, little plug for his business. If you need any stuff, have a word with Owen. He'll do you a good deal, I'm sure. But he, he produces these little cards for us. And I, I have to say, I was greatly encouraged when Owen said that one of his uh, uh, team, really, somebody that he's employed, uh, not a Christian, I don't think, had been really interested in, in the series and the titles of the messages. And as I looked at this one, and, and Mike Law, our church secretary, pointed out to me, this has got to be one of the least friendly, potentially, front-line invitations we've ever had. Not because of the great artwork, that's brilliant, but because of the titles of the messages, because it's all in Hebrew. Might as well have been in Greek, as they say. But then people wouldn't understand Greek either. Let me just check, how many of you speak Hebrew? A little bit, Alison. Wow, you see, missionary, you see. A little bit of Hebrew, okay. Well, you're all going to be able to speak Hebrew and read Hebrew by the end of this message. Okay, I promise you, at least one word. But here's a little tip for your front line. If you are in that place, and I hope you are in the place on your front line where you're, you're sharing your life and showing God's love and speaking up for justice and all of those other things, it's not just about you know, hitting people with the Bible. You have to be careful not to do that sometimes. But if it's appropriate to give an invitation to someone, like to an Alpha course or even to church, then you might think this isn't the best. But actually, as you look at that, and someone might say, well, what's all that about? You might say, oh, that's Hebrew. The, the Old Testament's in, in, written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And these are all names of God. And if they say, well, what does it mean? What do his names mean? What's in a name? What are those names of God about? You can say, I don't know what that one is because we haven't got to that one yet. Pastor hasn't dealt with it. But by the end of this series, as myself and other people preach on this, hopefully we won't just know a little bit of Hebrew and know a name of God. We will know God in a more personal way ourselves. Because you see, the whole point of the names of God in Scripture is to help us to understand who God is and God's character. So if you were to say, why this series now? Well, that we can understand our Bible, our love letter from God, our love letter from heaven deeply, and we can know God and know his character in a more helpful way. So before we get to the text from Isaiah, let's just say that what we're looking at when we look at this first name is one of the three primary names of God. One of the three basic, you could say, names of God. So I'm sure you've heard that Jehovah or Yahweh, and we've used that name in song already this morning, which means block capitals, L-O-R-D, Lord, as it's written in our scripture. Jehovah or Yahweh is the great I Am. That is the, if you like, the covenant name of God to the people, the Jews. But then there's Adonai, that's a second primary name. Adonai means Lord or Master. And the word here is Elohim. That's how it's pronounced, so... Would you say that with me? I'll say it again and then we'll say it together. Elohim. Right, ready? Together? Elohim. Now you speak Hebrew now, you see. And it simply means God. So Elohim means God. So we all know at least one word of Hebrew. The interesting thing about this name is that this name is in a plural form. Why is it in a plural form? Well, there's all kinds of scholarly debate that has raged about this over the years, but it comes from a root word, El, which is a kind of a general term, and it's used even in other religions to mean omnipotent, prominent, strong, and mighty. 
Another way of saying Elohim, or another way it's recorded, is Elohe. But the word Elohim is a plural form of Eloah. Eloah, it's a plural form, okay? Now, some people have said in these scholarly debates, that's a plurality of majesty. If you know anything about recent British history, you might know that Queen Victoria, who reigned for a long time, Queen Victoria would sometimes say, we are not pleased, or we are pleased. And what she meant was, I'm not pleased, or I am pleased. It was the royal we. Have you heard that expression? The plural of majesty. But there's something much more profound and much deeper going here, though there is a truth that the plurality is used to show the majesty of God. So Elohim then, prominent, omnipotent, strong, mighty, contains this sense of the majestic. And it's one of the oldest designations of divinity. One of the oldest. So it portrays God then as this transcendent, all-powerful being. This being that is above all things. We sang a hymn in the first service this morning, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Many of you won't know that hymn, many of you will. But what those words capture is this sense that God is immortal. He's always existed. There's never a time he didn't exist. But he's invisible and he's hidden in unapproachable light. And that is true. Except as we know, and we've already sung, he revealed himself through his son, Jesus. So as we come and you look at the Hebrew behind me for Elohim, so now you can not only speak Hebrew, Elohim, and interpret it God, but if you look at that, you can write Hebrew as well. So that's not bad for a morning, is it? You've learned to read and interpret and write Hebrew, at least one word. And this is the word that is there right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, and Elohim appears 32 times in Genesis chapter 1, over two and a half thousand times throughout the Old Testament scriptures, but 32 times just in this one chapter. And the Bible begins like this, in the beginning God, Elohim. In the beginning Elohim. And it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I began the service today by reading from Psalm 19 and verse 1, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's as if this God, this amazing creator God, has declared his existence through the magnificence of creation. Elohim, God. In the beginning, God created. But if we go a little bit further into chapter 1 and read verses 26 to 27, we start to pick up this concept of plurality again. Because we see that God says, or God's word says here, of God in Genesis 1:26, then God said, listen to this, let us make man in our image. That's strange, isn't it? It's plural. Let us make man in our image. In our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. But listen to verse 27. So God, this is Elohim, the God who said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God, Elohim, verse 27, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
So you've got this plurality of majesty and grandeur, only one God, but the plurality is recognized later on in the chapter that God who is one, he makes man and woman in his own image, says let us. How on earth can that be? Well, I'm sure that many, perhaps even all of you here, are ahead of me. Because God is one God in three persons. And when we baptize people in this baptistry, which covered, is covered at the moment, but as we did recently, the person who's baptized by immersion goes under the water, they're baptized in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. When I pronounced it a blessing over Priye and Emmanuel to celebrate the renewal of their uh, marriage vows, to rededicate their marriage after 40 years of happiness. And when I married um, Jonathan Bill to Lydia, his wife, here seven d- eight days ago, uh, I said the same thing when I blessed them. Blessed them in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we've got this God who from the very first word in Scripture is a God that we see is a God that is one God, but this, this issue of plurality. All the adjectives that are ever used of the noun God, the noun Elohim, all the adjectives and all the verbs that go with that are always singular. In the Bible, they're always in the singular. So the plurality is in Elohim, but it always speaks of God as the one God. That's important for us to know. Because some... Islamic people, Muslim people, think we worship three gods. That's why they think that, that, that we're apostate. We're totally confused. That's what they think. They regard and revere Jesus as a great prophet, but not as great as Muhammad. And let me tell you, Jesus could not be only a prophet. Why? Because prophets don't allow people to worship them. And Jesus did when Thomas, after the resurrection having doubted that Jesus was raised, when he encountered him and he saw the wound marks, Thomas said and declared, my Lord and my God. Jesus was not a prophet. If he was only a, he was a prophet, if he was only a prophet, I have to tell you, he was a false prophet. As it's been put by somebody, C.S. Lewis, Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or he was Lord. So when we look at God's character as revealed in his names, and you'll see we put the magnifying glass on this name Elohim, we recognize that the supreme way that God's character is revealed is through his names, but also through his son Jesus. This is important, that this word Elohim that seems quite general and is one of the primary three names of God, it seems that God's transcendent and, uh, and mighty and almighty and he's up there in invisible and in, in unapproachable light. And sometimes it may seem that way to you and to others and it even did to Jesus when he hung on the cross in agony and he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, which is a form of Elohim. Jesus cried, and it's recorded for us in Matthew 27, 46, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me ask, have you ever felt that God's abandoned you? Ever felt let down by God? Ever felt, where are you, God? Well, Jesus felt that. Jesus hung on the cross and cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Elohim, God, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then later on, that dreadful dark day, Good Friday, 
Jesus said to the Elohim, Father God, that he knew and loved and trusted, that he's always known from eternity. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And Paul, who was frequented with suffering, the great Apostle Paul, a lot of our New Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit through the writing of Paul. Paul uh, um, had the inspiration of God to give us these scriptures which God has guarded and secured for us. Paul spoke about knowing and wanting to know the name and understand the name of God. Listen to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. I'll read it for us. Paul says, I want to know Christ. He longed to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But he didn't say there. He went on and said, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's aware that he is going to be resurrected. He's got complete confidence, but there's this mystery of how on earth can this happen? Well, he knows the only answer is to know God better. And to know God better, you need to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And he even wants to know the fellowship of sharing in the suffering of the one who suffered so much, he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, Elohim, why have you abandoned me? You see, God doesn't want us to be remote from him. God loves us and God wants us to be up, close and personal with him. So as we look at God's character being revealed in the names, we'll we'll do that as we go throughout the series, but the revelation of who God is comes through his son and it comes through knowing his name. So let's go to John chapter 17. I'll give you a chance to turn there with me. And while you're turning to John 17, John's Gospel in the 17th chapter, we're going to look at three verses only, verse 3, verse 6, and verse 26. And we will see that this Jesus reveals God to us, Elohim to us, by revealing his name to us. That's actually what Jesus prays. This is the night of his arrest. It's called the Great High Priestly Prayer. And John 17 records for us what Jesus prayed out loud with the disciples listening so they could hear him to his heavenly Father to find strength on the night of his arrest and before his crucifixion. Let's look at verse 3 of John 17 then, Revelation through his name. And we read here that Jesus prays out loud to God, to Elohim, to his heavenly Father, so the disciples can hear. He prays, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let me pause there. You may be here today, and, and whether this is true of you or not, you are welcome. Just as I gave a welcome to everyone at that wonderful occasion here yesterday. At the beginning I said you are welcome if you're a person of the Christian faith, if you're a person of another faith, or you're a person of no faith. In other words, an atheist. Because it's our desire as a church that would people, people would come to know God. But let me tell you, there's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Are you with me? To know God in the biblical sense means to know him as intimately as a husband knows a wife. That's shocking language, but the Bible uses it to know God in this personal, incredibly intimate way. He wants to come and make residence in our life. Wow. So in verse 3 of John 17, Jesus prays, Now this is eternal life. If you want to know the secret of eternal life, it's this, that you know the only true God and how 
You know Jesus Christ whom he, whom he sent. You know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Let's go to verse 6. I think we'll get this more clearly. Because in verse 6, Jesus is still praying this high priestly prayer. And he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they've obeyed your word. He's talking about the disciples in their listening now. He's thanking Father that the Father gave him these disciples that gathered close to Jesus. And Jesus taught them as a rabbi, as their Lord and Savior as well. But as he, as he thanks the Father, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me. And if you look at the footnote in your Bible there, there's a little footnote for verse 6, and it lets us know that the Greek underlying that it says actually your name. I have revealed you. Jesus is saying, I've revealed your name to these disciples. And it's brought home when we look at the 26th verse, that Jesus is showing these disciples God's name. He's bringing revelation through God's name and he's revealing God's character through his character. So let's look at John 17, 26. Jesus is still praying and he prays, I have made you known. There it is again. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Well, this is awesome stuff. So Jesus is saying, remember the underlying Greek from the footnote, I have made your name known to them. I've made you known by making your name known to them. And I will continue to make you, your name, known to them, to make you known to them. Why? Here's the purpose. In order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Wow. Here's a question. Do you know about God? Or do you know God personally? While you're thinking about this, don't jump to any hasty conclusions. Have a good look at the people either side of you. Look them in the eyes if you dare. Overcome if you're a Brit, your British reserve, and look at the people either side of you and look deeply into their eyes. Let me ask you a question. Did you catch a glimpse of Jesus? Because if that person whose eyes you are looking into doesn't just know about God, but knows God, then according to this verse, the love of God lives in them because Jesus lives in them. Let me read it again, John 17 and verse 26. I'm going to continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me, the love of Elohim, God, may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Wow. The only way to come to Elohim is through his son, Jesus Christ, who makes his name known. And when you respond to that revelation, you can receive Jesus in you, and he takes up residence in you, here it is, plurality, by the Holy Spirit who comes into your life. If you're a Christian, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. How cool is that? That is absolutely amazing. That's what the Bible teaches. And God's character is revealed through his name. So let's move on. Let's look a little bit more deeply at Elohim. And we will see now when we eventually we get to Isaiah chapter 45. And I'm not doing a, a deep exposition of this, don't panic. But there are some key verses we need to understand in order to understand Elohim as creator God and covenant God. 
Elohim is creator God and covenant God. And we move from a picture of the name Elohim to a picture of a Jewish man who is a carpenter. You know his name. Okay? It's a modern visual representation of Jesus. The carpenter of Nazareth who worked with wood. Am I really suggesting that that is an adequate picture of Elohim who is the creator God and the covenant God? You want to bet I am. Absolutely. Because he has completely transformed my life. Jesus. So as we look at Isaiah 45 and 12 to 13, let me give you a little bit of background. The great prophet Isaiah is prophesying about a time of sad judgment upon the people of God because they've ignored the prophets, they've ignored God. The enemies, their enemies are coming in, they're going to take them away. But he prophesies years and years ahead to a time when God will raise up a ruler who's not a Jew, a ruler called Cyrus, and he will call his people back. Cyrus will rebuild the city of Jerusalem where the temple is. And God will call his people back. The prophet is reassuring the people that he is Elohim. He's not only the almighty creator, he's the God who made a covenant with them. God who made an agreement with them. A God who took an oath over them. That they were his chosen people, that they were special. The God who was going to bring forth the Messiah through them. That's some of the background. You see, let's, before we go anywhere else, say about Elohim, who is creator and almighty, he is otherworldly, he is transcendent, he is up there and out there, but he also wants to be up close and personal in a relationship of love, and that requires covenant. Just as when couples come together, they make a covenant before God, if it's a Christian marriage. And God has made a covenant with his people. So let's read first of all from Isaiah 45 and verse 18. And if I read from Isaiah 45 and verse 18, we read about this creator God. Listen to what he says to his prophet. He says, for this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God, he's Elohim. He who fashioned and made the earth and founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, that's Jehovah, Yahweh, and there is no other. So when we read about this Elohim who created the heavens, this Elohim who fashioned and made the earth, it reminds us right back in Genesis that says, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But let me read on a little bit in Genesis, because the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. The Spirit of God. Hold on to that. And then God speaks in the third verse. It says, Elohim, God said... And Elohim said, God said, let there be light. And I could imagine Ross, if he was preaching this, would then go, boom, and there was light. And if you're a scientist, for me, that's Big Bang. If you believe in Big Bang, or whether you do or you don't, it's not a problem to me whether God created in six literal days or God created over eons because a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. I don't get bogged down on that. I've got a degree in zoology. I don't get bogged down on it. God is creator. Amen? However he did it, however long it took, you'll get different versions. You want to talk about it in depth, talk to Professor John Spicer. He's good on this. 
But God said, let there be light. He spoke creation into being and there was light. And God continues to speak and God said, let there be an expanse, verse 6. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered, verse 14. God said, let let, let there be lights in the sky, verse 20. God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Verse 24, God said, let the land produce living creatures. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. And in the image, in his image, single, he created man and woman. So you've got Elohim right at the beginning, the creator. You've got the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. God, the Holy Spirit, we find out in Scripture. And then you've got God speaking the word. And if you go to John chapter 1, you get John the Apostle, who literally inclined his head upon the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, when he institutes what is called the New Covenant on behalf of this covenant God. A covenant not written any longer on tablets of stone to be obeyed, and because you failed to sacrifice animals in penance. No, a blood of the New Covenant, sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ, represented by that wine at the New new Covenant supper as we call it where he breaks the bread and said this is my body which is given for you it's going to be broken the cup this is my cup the cup of the new covenant it's my blood shed for you this covenant god has longed to have relationship with those who he created who inhabited the earth and john describes in the beginning of his gospel this jesus as the word the word through which god has spoken and will speak It says in the first chapter of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now it's in Greek, so it wouldn't say Elohim, but it might as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with Elohim, and the the Word was Elohim. And this sounds like a mystery, so we've got plurality, you see. We've got Elohim, we've got the Holy Spirit, and we've got the Word, boom, that speaks. And elsewhere in the New Testament it says, nothing has been created except through Jesus all things were created by him and for him that's what we're told in Colossians see the plurality hey can you can ask can anyone tell me who could have invented this and made it all up 66 books so many authors over hundreds of years and it all comes together in one seamless unity with a golden thread called Jesus Christ running right the way through it isn't it awesome And it's a love letter from heaven so that you and I will know we are cherished. Creator God, verse 12 of Isaiah 45. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. He created the heavens. He fashioned the earth, but he fashioned it to be inhabited. And when we go back to the beginning of Genesis, we see that one God in three persons is the one who creates. The Trinity, as Christians call God. One, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he's also the covenant God. A covenant of love, not a covenant of law. A covenant of love in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, and you and I will always fall short. And in verses 21 to 23, we read in Isaiah 45 about that. He says, Declare what is to be present. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? 
And there is no God, there's no Elohim, there's no God apart from me. A righteous God, a righteous Elohim, and a saviour. There is none but me. In other words, there's no saviour but me. Then listen to these verses very carefully. Turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, not just the Jews, but the ends of the earth, all people. Turn to me and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. You see, when, when God makes a promise, when God makes covenant, when God makes an oath, in that sense, when he swears, as it says here, what's he going to swear by? You and I might go into a court of law and put our hand on a Bible and, and say that by Almighty God we will tell the truth and nothing but the truth. But God has no one to swear than other than by himself because there's no one greater. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. And then let's strain our ears to hear this. He says, before me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear, or we could say confess. Before me every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So this is the creator God. This is the covenant God who we read in verse 17 is the covenant God of Israel. In verse 19 is the covenant God of Jacob. He's saying he's got a covenant of promise, the old covenant with the, with the Jews. But he's bringing forth from them the Messiah, Jesus, who will be the, the messenger, the prophet, and, and at the heart of the new covenant for all people. Because God loves all people. and wants all people to come back to him, to repent and turn of their sin and come back to him. He is the one true mighty God who alone can save. He's the one true and mighty God who alone can save. He says, turn to me and be saved. We've just read that in verses 22 to 23. Now let's pause. I'm not going to be rude and ask people to put their hands up. But you will know whether you are saved or not, apart from some that might not know the language. Let me demystify the language. When God says, come to me and be saved, he means... Come to me, because without me, and if you're separated from me, you're lost. I am your creator. I made you for relationship and love. And, and, and if you've turned your back on me, if you are refusing to repent and turn and, and come to me because I love you, you will be lost in this life and in the life to come. You'll be separated me from me for eternity. In darkness, you'll just be lost. I will give you what you choose in this life for the rest of eternity. Wow. But that sounds negative. Let me tell you the positive. This God who says, turn to me and be saved, wants you to have a relationship of love with him in this life, and, uh, and this is really good news, an eternal life beyond this life. How many people out there, if they really thought you could guarantee it, do you think would say, nah, sorry, not really interested in eternal life? There might be some. Because they've had so much pain and so much horror in this life, they can't think of it continuing. How tragic is that? They really need a hope for the future in this life and the life to come. But this good news is that Jesus removed all the barriers by his death on the cross to us having a relationship with a holy God. If we will turn and receive him into our heart and into our life and enter into this new covenant through the blood of Jesus with him, represented by baptism, the one true God 
who is plurality in unity, has done all that is necessary. The one true God who is plurality, one God in three persons in unity has done this. So let me just read for you uh, to set this context of Isaiah 22 to 23. Let's go to Romans 14 and verse 11. And you'll see that this one true God is the God who's plurality in unity. If you've got uh, a Bible, turn with me to Romans. It's verse 11, but I'm going to read from verse 9 down to verse 12. And then one more scripture after this and we're done. It'll all come together. Please, God. So Romans 14, Paul's writing to Christians in Rome, persecuted Christians, persecuted for their faith. And he always takes the chance to make practical application about how they should love God and love each other. So that's what he's doing here in from verse 9 of Romans 14. He's talking about the weak and the strong in the church. And he says, For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. There's the gospel. Jesus was crucified and Jesus was resurrected. Christ died and returned to life. So that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? In other words, if God's not judging you because his son has accepted you and loved you, why do you then think you can look down your nose at your brother and judge your brother? He says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Now, let me be clear. I will stand and all of you will stand and everyone out there in the city of Plymouth and everyone in the world will stand after the great resurrection when Jesus comes back with those who've already gone, they'll be reunited with their resurrection bodies. It's going to be a great day of judgment and we will all stand there and we will have to give an account. Whatever that looks like, whatever that sounds like, God already knows but there'll be people there listening. I want to tell you that I will not measure up. You don't want to know some of the stuff in my life for the first 32 years. It's been a lot better since I met Jesus, but you don't want to know. I maybe didn't murder or rob banks, but there was moments I do not want projected on that screen. And on the day of judgment, I'd have to give an account for my whole life, pre-Jesus and post-Jesus. But I'm just telling you, I am so glad that there'll be somebody there on that day, an advocate, a saviour, a Lord, who will simply say, Father, I know him, he's mine. He's one of the ones that you gave to me. I revealed your name to Clive. I made you known to Clive. Clive has received me into his heart. The very next verse in Romans 11 that follows from we'll all stand before God's judgment seat quotes Isaiah chapter 45 verse 23 which we've read. It says this, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. Now this is Elohim, remember? So last scripture, go to Philippians with me. Chapter 2. And while you're turning there, we're going to read verses 9 to 11. And Philippians chapter 2 from verse uh, 6 down to verse 11 is a, almost certainly either a poem or a New Testament hymn or a, or a song like the beautiful songs that Paul and the team led us in this morning. That's what it is. And Paul's quoting it like preachers sometimes quote a hymn. And as we just read verses 9 to 11 of Philippians 2 at the end of this hymn of worship to Jesus, so not just a prophet, he's worshipped. Listen to what is written from verse 9 of Philippians 2. 
Therefore God, now if this was in Hebrew, it's not, it's in Greek, but therefore God, so this equivalent of Elohim, okay, that general name for God. Therefore God exalted him, who? Jesus. Exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave Jesus the name that is above every name. What? What? Every name? Including all the names of God as revealed throughout Scripture, including those Hebrew names that we're going to be looking at. Yeah, Jesus is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and confess, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Clive, how do you reconcile this? Because in Isaiah, Clive, you've already told us that in verse 45, 23, it says that God is the name above every name. It says that he is the one that says every knee will bow before Elohim. Every tongue will confess Elohim. So how can this now be Jesus? That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. How come? Final insight. Seventy Jewish scholars translated the whole of the Old Testament scriptures into a translation called the Septuagint, which is linked with the word 70. And these 70 scholars translated all of the, the scriptures in Hebrew into Greek, common Greek, so that people could at least read the Hebrew scriptures for themselves at the time of Jesus. That, that had been produced. And as that was produced, the word that they used over and over for God, for Lord, for Yahweh, because it's so sacred that they didn't want to write it, was the word kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord. So if you followed me, Jesus can be spoken of in the Old Testament by a prophet of God speaking the word of God saying, that God, Elohim, says, before me every knee will bow, before me every tongue will confess that I am Lord. And that's how it can be said also of Jesus, because Jesus is not only the Son of God, He is God the Son. Are you with me? He has fully and finally revealed God, not just to the Jews, but to every person. And in this book we have the full and final Old Covenant New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, that gives us an absolute assurance. And I'm going to ask the band to come back now, but, but I want to give you the single and simple application of all of this teaching. There'll be much more application in the weeks to come. But here's the application for you today. If you ever feel abandoned by Elohim, if you ever feel so sad, so broken, so lonely, such a failure through your own sinful patterns or the way that people have broken your heart. If you ever feel like that, know this, that Jesus can identify with you and he loves you, that he hung on a cross and said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's Jesus said that I will never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. It's Jesus that said that you're in the Father's hand. You're in my hand to his disciples. He said, I and the Father are one. You cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. You cannot be snatched out of my hand. It's Jesus that has revealed God.
God's name to us. And if you are a Christian, you can be secure in that. If you're not a Christian, you can become a Christian by simply surrendering your life to God, asking Jesus to come into your life by the Holy Spirit, by repenting of your sin and turning away from it and living for Him. Let's stand together. A final prayer and then a final song. I want to thank you for listening so attentively. I'm sure there are some brains that are experiencing near meltdown. But the simple, beautiful truth is that God loves you and God is almighty and you can depend on Him. Father, you are Elohim and we love you and worship you. And Father, you gave your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, that whoever trusts in him would not perish but have eternal life. You so love this world that you gave him, Father. And Father, we thank you that to those who put their trust in Jesus and come to you, Father God, through him, you promise the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sin, but you promise the gift of your Holy Spirit too. Father, as we end this time of worship and celebration, please fill those of us who know you and love you afresh with your Holy Spirit. And for those of us, perhaps, who are still considering, Lord, through Jesus, reveal yourself to us, Father. Reveal your name to us, Father God, that we might know you and love you too. And all these things we pray. In the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.